Well, um, because I did spend so, t- so much time networking and uh, interviewing, I only caught like three of the 18 sessions. Seriously, I felt like a bum. I was like, uh, hey, how's it going, guys? Are you enjoying these sessions? I haven't heard of one of them, you know? Um, so, uh, but, but anyway, the, the ones that I, that, I was, that I did have the privilege of sitting through, um, you know, there was just one passage of Scripture that just kept coming back to my mind in every session. Um, and it was 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 5. And I'd like us to look at this passage together this morning. And again, if you've been with us for years here at Lakeside, you know that about seven or eight years ago, we, we, we taught through the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus. And, and this was really a, the launching pad, this text for for our study on expository listening and that book that we did together. And so this is a very uh, formative passage of Scripture, very foundational uh, to our church and who we are and why we do what we do and why I am who I am and what we're committed to. And so I thought it'd be good for us just to review this portion of God's Word this morning, and hopefully um, it will be an encouragement to you. I've titled this message, this morning's message, Every Word Inspired every word preached. Every word inspired, every word preached. In other words, the doctrine of inspiration, i.e. inerrancy, implies exposition. I would even say it this way, illust- uh, excuse me, uh, um, inspiration demands exposition. If, if we believe that every word of God, right? Every word in this book is inspired, then that demands that every word in this book is preached. And that's why we're committed to verse by verse, line by line, word for word exposition of the text. And it really ultimately goes back to our view of the scriptures, that they're inerrant. They're the inspired, infallible, inerrant word of God. And no better passage in the scripture to talk about that, then 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, Paul wrote to Timothy saying, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. And just for the sake of this morning, forget there's a chapter break there because there was never a big number four with a little subtitle there in the original letter that Paul wrote to Timothy, but he just kept right on going. Uh, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Father, thank you for your precious word. I pray that your spirit... Uh, even as he inspired this text, would now illuminate our minds to understand this text and how it applies to our lives and to our church. We pray for your glory in Jesus' name. There's an old story uh, from the days of knights in shining armor about a very ordinary youth who was afraid to test his skill at arms on the tournament field. And so his friends, wanting to have some fun with him, presented him with a sword 
which they said possessed an ancient magical power and that the man who wielded this sword could never meet defeat in battle. And to their amazement, their young friend grabbed the sword and he sprang onto the field and he he quickly began to fight and he won match after match after match and never had anyone witnessed such speed and daring of arms. And so with each tournament, news of his artistry spread and before long he was hailed as the foremost knight of the realm. Thinking it would be no harm or do no harm, one of his friends pulled him aside and revealed the joke and confided that the sword contained no magic at all, but it was just an ordinary sword. And instantly, terror seized that young knight. And when he stood at the edge of the field of combat, his legs shook beneath him and his breath caught in his throat and his fingers lost all grip and no longer able to trust his sword, he never fought again. I think Timothy was a lot like this young knight. He was a timid young man who lacked confidence in his ability to battle against the false teachers who were ravaging the church in Ephesus where he was serving. And so in order to boost his confidence level, his spiritual mentor, Paul, wrote this letter to encourage him in the battle by reminding him of his strong spiritual roots, where he came from, as well as the spiritual resources that God had provided him. And of all the resources that Paul mentioned in these pastoral epistles, none was more vital for victory than the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. This is no ordinary sword. This possesses supernatural power. And if you are uh, desirous, I would encourage you to go online and, and, and look for the message that Steve Lawson preached at the conference Uh, the Inerrancy Summit, on the seven um, symbols of the sacred scriptures. And he talked about the different images that the Bible uh, uses to compare to scripture, like like it's a fire that consumes wood, it's a hammer that shatters a a rock, it's a a sword, a knife, a scalpel, a, a scalpel that is able to pierce our hearts and penetrate the depths of our souls. It's like seed that, that when it's thrown out, it always accomplishes the purpose for which it goes forth. It's a, a really a phenomenal message. And I would encourage you to, if you could listen to one message from that conference, I would look for that message by Steve Lawson. It was a very encouraging, very challenging message. And because of all those things about the Bible that are true about the Bible, that's why one who skillfully wields the scriptures will never face defeat in battle. As long as it remains firmly in their grip, they'll be able to withstand the severest, the most savage spiritual attacks. And when Paul wrote Timothy, he was already engaged in combat with these religious imposters who who were seeking to disrupt the church there in Ephesus and and deceive people with their false teaching and and lead them away from the truth that, that Paul had taught them. And so Paul warned Timothy that the, the battle was, was, was only going to get worse. In the days preceding the the second coming of Christ, the the fighting would get even more intense and the situation in the world and the church would become even more perilous and only a few would survive the mass deception and defection. And in order to to fully understand why Paul said what he said in verses 16 through chapter 4 verse 5, we need to see this text in its context. 
And so I want us just to go and just quickly read uh, verses 1 through 15, which lead us into this text, and, 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 and notice how Paul provided Timothy here strategies for staying steadfast in the midst of the growing defection and deception in the church so that he would never fall away from the faith like some of his fellow leaders had already fallen away there in the church in Ephesus. But notice, first of all, he says, Timothy, you need to know the times, chapter 3, verse 1, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So the first strategy there for not falling away from the faith is is to know the times in which you live. And then he goes on to talk about avoiding uh, spiritual imposters. And Paul goes on here to give a prophetic description of, of what people will be like leading up to Christ's return. And, and Paul wanted to make sure that Timothy would be able to identify these, these pagans disguised as Christians who call themselves evangelicals, but they deny the inerrancy of Scripture. So he provides a, a vivid portrait of their lives and ministry, and he, he talks first of all about their character, verse 2, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of godliness, although they've denied its power. Avoid such men as these. And so he reveals their their character, and then he talks about the craftiness of their ways in verse 6. He says, for among them are those who enter into households and captivate weak women, weighed down with sins, led on by various impulses, always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he shows the the end of their ministry or the conclusion. What what comes of these these spiritual imposters? Verse 8, just as Janus and Jambres, he gives an example here, opposed Moses so that these men also, so these men also opposed the truth, men of depraved mind, rejected in regard to the faith, but they will not make further progress for their folly will be obvious to all just as Janus and Jambres' folly was also. And so the second strategy here for for not falling away from the faith is not only you need to know the times, but you need to to recognize spiritual imposters and and avoid them at all costs. And then he turns to the positive, and and, and the third strategy he gives them here is to uh, Timothy. He says, hey, you need to follow godly mentors. You need to avoid spiritual imposters, and you need to follow godly mentors. And in verses 10 through 15, what Paul does is he reminded Timothy of the godly example that he had set for him as his spiritual mentor in order to inspire him to to stay steadfast in the face of difficulty, even like Paul had. And so based on Paul's example here, uh, we we see um, what it looks like. What, What does a godly mentor look like? Who are we to pattern our lives after? Verse 10, now you followed my teaching conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions and sufferings, such as happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 
And so in order to keep from being deceived and falling away from the truth, you need to follow godly mentors. And you say, well, how do I know if a guy is a, a godly mentor or not? Well, does he fit the description here of the Apostle Paul in, in that he teaches sound doctrine, he lives a life of integrity, he strives to honor and please the Lord, he depends on God and he's dependable, he, he, he tolerates frustrating people and, and situations, he's patient, he genuinely loves God and others, he, he joyfully bears up under the problems and, and, and pressures of life, he will endure suffering and, and persecution. That's just a short list of, of, of the kind of guy or gal that you want to be under, that you want to follow, that you want to mentor you. And then the final strategy that he gives him here, Timothy, if you're going to stay on track in the midst of this, this deception and this defection, is that you need to maintain a confident commitment to the Scriptures, to the authority and, and sufficiency of God's word. And, and, and you read that, that prediction, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. I mean, that would make anyone's legs shake and, and, and cause your breath to get caught in your throat and your fingers to lose grip on the truth. And so that's why Paul ends here uh, this letter, and, and this is really, this is the last letter that he wrote. It was probably within days, weeks, months of, of, of him getting beheaded by Nero. And so, see, these were the last things that Paul was to say uh, to not just his young disciple, but to the church. And so he climaxes, this letter climaxes with a reminder of the crucial role that the scriptures play in our lives and ministries. And in fact, the, the key to Timothy's survival, and I would say even our survival in the difficult days ahead, is maintaining an unwavering commitment to the Word of God. Paul wanted to make sure that no matter what happened, that Timothy never lost confidence in his sword. I think a firm belief in the Bible is the only thing that will cause us to remain faithful and steadfast and strong during the mass defection and deception that is coming within the church. This was not just back then. This is now. It's happening now. And if there ever comes a time in our lives when we no longer trust the reliability and the sufficiency of the, of the scriptures, then, then we will inevitably fall away from the faith. And that's why it's so imperative that we as believers develop and maintain strong convictions regarding, regarding the Bible, namely that it is the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of God, period. We, we understand the Conviction, what does that mean? Conviction, it's a strong belief. It's something you're convinced of. It's something you're committed to, that you're unwilling to compromise. And throughout church history, there have been those who have compromised their commitment to God's Word. During the Reformation, there were those who undermined the authority of Scripture by placing man-made traditions and, and rituals and councils on the same level as Scripture. In more recent years, the, there have been those who have denied the inerrancy of Scripture by questioning whether certain parts of the Bible are accurate, like what Sam was mentioning. Hey, can we really, do we really believe the Genesis account? 
Did God really create the world in six literal 24-hour days? Was there, was there a flood and, you know, all that? We, if, hey, listen, if you, if you say, well, we really can't believe that, well, why can you believe anything else? You might as well forget, throw the Bible away. If you can't believe the first 11 chapters, why would you think you can believe the rest of it? More recently, I think there's those who have, been, have abandoned the sufficiency of Scripture. By using secular philosophies and, and methods to do the work of the ministry. There's, I think today, I think the, the, the defining issue in, in some places is, is the, the idea of the perspicuity of Scripture, or the clarity of Scripture. It's, it's being blurred. People are saying that, that nothing in Scripture can be held with any certainty. You can't be dogmatic. You, you need to simply humbly dialogue and say, this is what I think it means. What do you think it means? This interpretation, they, they call it a, 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 a humble hermeneutics, that we're not, we're not arrogant enough to think that we can actually know what the Bible says. And so here in these final verses, and the, in, this, in this passage, Paul, I believe, was seeking to reinforce Timothy's confidence in, and commitment to God's Word. And notice he says in verse 14, you, however... In other words, in contrast to these evil men and imposters who are going to go from bad to worse, you, however, continue in the things you've learned. Paul was, Paul was calling Timothy to remain committed to the great truths of the faith that he had learned and become convinced of through his teaching and, and through the teaching of his godly mother and grandmother. He mentions later on in verse 15, and that from childhood you've known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. And, and we know he was referring back uh, to, to his uh, grandmother Lois and, and his mother Eunice, godly women who had instructed this young Timothy. He says, from childhood, you, you've known the sacred writings. He's, that's a reference there for the Old Testament scriptures. That was, that's what the, the term that the Greek-speaking Jews uh, used to refer to the Old Testament. And he said, these are able to give you wisdom that leads to salvation. Again, we don't have time to get into this, but the, the scriptures reveal to us what we need to know in order to be saved. You cannot get saved apart from the scriptures. Looking at the sun, looking at the moon, looking at the stars, looking at the ocean is not enough to get you saved. That's general revelation. You need special revelation. You need the scriptures. And that's why we go on mission trips. That's why we support missions. Because we're convinced that a person, uh, some, some native in Ishtapipi out there, is not going to come to Christ through worshiping a tree. He needs the truth of the Word of God. He needs the gospel. Faith comes from hearing and hearing the Word of Christ. And, and, okay, and it's through faith in Christ, he says, that salvation is through faith in Christ. And again, the, the entire Bible is, is, is pointing to the person and work of Christ. And so I think what Paul was simply reminding Timothy of here is that everything he had learned from the Old Testament, from his mother and grandmother, had prepared his heart to receive the word of Christ when it was preached to him by the Apostle Paul. When, and when Timothy heard Paul reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures how Christ was the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, he, he called on his name, he confessed, and, and he, he was saved and his life was forever changed. 
And then Paul says this, all scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequately equipped for every good work. I don't think I need to tell you this, but this is one of the most important passages in the Bible about the Bible. No other passage in the New Testament speaks as concisely and yet as comprehensively about the nature and the function of God's Word. And so I was just thinking of a simple way to break this down in our minds, and and we could say this, that verses 16 and 17 uh, focus on the reliability of God's Word, and in verses 1 through 5 in chapter 4 focus on the responsibility to God's Word. So you have the reliability of God's word, and, and, and if we're convinced that it's reliable, then that leads us to a responsibility, and that obviously is to preach it. Let's look quickly at the, the reliability of God's word in verses 16 and 17, and here Paul affirmed in these two verses three basic truths about the Bible that would encourage and empower Timothy to, to maintain a confident commitment to it. You've been maybe trying to take notes up until this point. That was all the introduction, okay? You got the outline, and now we're going to look at the outline that I've given you this morning. What are these three basic truths about the Bible? Number one, God's Word is infallible. God's Word is infallible. All Scripture is inspired by God. That word Scripture refers to the entire Old Testament as well as the New Testament that was in existence at the time. Luke 24, 27, it says that Jesus, beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures, and he was referring to the Old Testament. Paul, in Acts 17, 2, it says, according to his custom, went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures. 1 Timothy 5, 18, Paul says, for the scripture says, and then he quotes from the gospels. You shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing, and the laborer is worthy of his wages. He, he quotes Christ there. And so both Jesus and Paul refer to the Old Testament as Scripture. Paul refers to the New Testament as Scripture. In fact, Peter even referred to Paul's writing as Scripture. In 2 Peter 3.16, Paul in all his letters, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand... Aren't you glad Peter was honest enough to say, you know, I have a hard time understanding Paul sometimes. That's kind of how we all felt after we got done listening to R.C. Sproul. We're like, whoa, I'm not sure I got all that. He says, yeah, Paul's not the easiest guy to understand all the time. But he says, which, he, which the untaught and unstable distort as they do also the rest of the scriptures. So Peter equated Paul's writings and Paul's teaching with scripture. Put them on the same level. Why? Because they are Scripture. And so it says all Scripture, Old and New Testament, is inspired by God. Literally, that word inspired means God breathed. That God breathed out through the person and work of the Spirit. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse, verses 20 and 21, the clearest passage I think in the New Testament on the doctrine of inspiration, 2 Peter 1.20, it 
But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. I think even a better understanding of that word interpretation would be inspiration for no prophecy. And I I take that because of what it says next. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. In other words, men didn't sit down and write the Bible by themselves, but men moved by who? The Holy Spirit spoke from God. The picture that comes to my mind is a ship being carried along by the wind and going in the direction exactly the way that that wind wanted it to go. Let me give you just a simple definition of the doctrine of inspiration. Inspiration is the supernatural process whereby the Holy Spirit superintended human authors using their individual personalities, their backgrounds, and writing styles to compose and record His Word without error in the original manuscripts. I know that was a mouthful. Don't try to write it down. The point, the key word there is superintend. It's what we refer to as dual authorship. Who wrote the Bible? Did God write the Bible or men write the Bible? The answer is yes. Men wrote the, the Spirit of God wrote the Bible through the pens of men. And the writers of Scripture wrote down word for word exactly what God wanted them to write. It, it is the very words of God. That's a, a, a biblical definition of the doctrine of inspiration. B.B. Warfield wrote the classic work on inerrancy when he wrote his book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible. In fact, we were all given that as a gift when we arrived at the conference, was this reprint of B.B. Warfield's classic work. And and, and the, the, the sentence, right? Books don't necessarily change your life, sentences do. And the sentence in this book, The Inspiration and Authority of the Bible, that, that is, I think, the best sentence is this, quote, when the Bible speaks, God speaks. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. And so you may have heard the, 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 the expression or the term, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. You, you say, well, what does that mean? That sounds like something you learned in seminary. It, it is something I learned in seminary. But it's something you need to understand as well. The verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture simply means that each and every word was written by God himself. Verbal, that's the each. Each is the verbal. Every is the plenary. In other words, uh, verbal is every word. God didn't just give men general ideas or basic thoughts and and said, you take care of the exact wording. It doesn't really matter to me. Uh, You can just express those thoughts in your own words. No, he inspired every word and, and not just every word, but every part. That's the plenary, the idea of plenary, that it's not just the truths about spiritual things. Like, yeah, the, where, where it talks about spiritual things, we can, we can trust the Bible. When it talks about scientific things and historical things, uh, sometimes that's not always accurate, not always reliable. No, it's, it, it, it's the entire thing is accurate, is trustworthy. You say, how do you know it's accurate? Because God wrote it. And if we know anything about God, we know that God cannot lie. He can only tell the truth. You say, how do, how do we know God wrote it? Because he said he wrote it. You say, well, what about those who argue that the Bible is written by men? Seems like that's a little bit of circular reasoning, Ken. Well, the Bible says 
that God wrote it. So you're, you're arguing from the Bible about the Bible. And like, exactly. And you're arguing out of your little pea brain back into your little pea brain. We all have a reference point. We all have a starting point. We all have a standard by which we judge things. And you happen to be using your mind as your standard. And I'm happy to use God's word as my standard. And I would just say this, that smart men would never have written a book that damned them eternal, eternally to a place like hell. Does that sound like something you'd come up with? Oh, let me write a book. And I, everybody's damned to hell forever. I don't think smart men would write a book that did that. Smart men would never have written a book that made salvation beyond their ability to achieve. Oh, let's see. Well, we can come up with a religion where there's absolutely nothing we can do to be saved apart from our... Uh, somebody else doing something for us. Smart men would never call themselves desperately wicked worms who are by nature objects of God's wrath. If you were writing a book, ah, I'm going to call myself a, a worm, and then I'm under the wrath of God. Smart men would never make up a religion requiring them to hate their father and mother, to deny themselves, to take up a cross, and be willing to die. Furthermore, I don't, uh, there, there's no other way to explain how, how is it possible that approximately 40 men from different backgrounds, vocations, continents, languages over generations, uh, the course of 1,500 years, wrote 66 separate books at separate times, and there is not one contradiction, and there is one common theme that ties them all together. How is that possible unless somebody controlled the entire process? So the accuracy and the harmony of the Bible demand that it was inspired by God. Just the unity of the Bible itself demands inerrancy. And so what we're saying here is the entire Bible is reliable. Every word is dependable. It is the infallible, i.e. trustworthy, standard of what we should believe and how we should live. It's without error. It's never wrong. It cannot fail. It is perfect. Samuel Chadwick, an old English Methodist minister, said this. I've got, he said, I have guided my life by the Bible for more than 60 years. And I tell you, there is no book like it. It is a miracle of literature, a perennial spring of wisdom, a wonder of surprises, a revelation of mystery, an infallible guide of comfort, and an unspeakable source of comfort. Pay no attention to people who discredit it, for I tell you, they speak without knowledge. It is the word of God. Love that. So God's word is infallible, but notice also he says God's word is invaluable. It's invaluable. Notice verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God and, here we go, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The, the word of God is useful. It's, it's helpful. There's great spiritual benefit to be derived from every word that proceeded out of the mind and the mouth of God. And he, he lists here the, the four basic uses or purposes of the Bible, which, which really meet our four basic needs. Number one, it's, 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 it's good for teaching. It teaches us everything we need to know about everything. It's, it's useful for reproof. It convicts us of, of areas in our lives that are not pleasing to the Lord. It exposes our sin. It rebukes our sin. 
It corrects us. It's useful for correction. It, it sets us straight when we get off path. It, it, it gets us back on the right path. It, 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 it picks us up when we, when we stumble and fall. And then it trains us in righteousness. It, it instructs us. It disciplines us like a child as we grow to maturity in Christ. It shows us how to live a godly life that's pleasing to the Lord. It's, it's really like a map is really what the Bible is. It's, it shows us the right path we're supposed to walk on. It shows us when we veer off that right path, it shows us how to get back on that right path, and it shows us how to stay on that path. So the Bible is this all-purpose tool that works in our lives with great versatility and efficiency, which makes it invaluable, so precious and priceless that we wouldn't trade it for anything in the world. There's a shocking account in Fox's Book of Martyrs about a martyr named Timothy who was commanded by the governor in his day to give up his copy of the Bible to be burned. Give us your Bible, we're going to burn it. And this is what he said, quote, had I children, I would sooner deliver them up to be sacrificed than part with the word of God. I'd rather give you my children to be burned than to give you my Bible. Wow. Well, the governor didn't like that, and so he ordered that this man's eyes were to be burned out with hot irons so that he could not read his Bible. He wanted to make the Bible useless to him. So God's word is infallible. God's word is invaluable. And then thirdly, God's word is inexhaustible, verse 17, so that the man of God may be adequate equipped for every good work. Basically, that we would be complete. We would be capable and competent and sufficient and able to meet every demand that's ever placed on us. We would be able to deal with every situation that we face in life. We would be completely outfitted, fully furnished and supplied. It'd be like moving into a house and it was fully furnished. You had everything you needed. Or you were going on some expedition and you were fully outfitted. You had everything you need for that journey, for every good work. Timothy had a lot of work to do in the church. And Paul was reminding him here that God's word supplied him with everything he needed for the task. It's not like, yeah, I've got my Bible and this. I've got the Bible plus this. No, if you got your Bible, you got all you need. The Bible is the most strategic weapon that God has given us to keep us from falling away from him. And, and that's why we must remain loyal and faithful to his word at all costs. Paul wanted Timothy to realize that the, the key to surviving the difficult days that would come, the key was maintaining an unwavering commitment to the reliability of the word of God. And part of that commitment to the reliability of God's word was was to faithfully preach it even when people didn't want to listen. And that's where he goes next. And again, forget the chapter break here. Notice the responsibility to God's word. Because essentially, I think what Paul's saying to Timothy in the first five verses of this next chapter is simply this. In light of the authority and sufficiency of God's word, you need to preach it, Timothy. What else are you going to do with your life and ministry? Preach the word. And so he gives him this charge 
probably the most memorable charge that Paul ever gave to anyone, kind of the great commission, if you will, of, of, of the Pauline epistles. Here it is, preach the word. And uh, we see some, some aspects here of this, of this charge that, uh, that Paul gave to Timothy. We see, first of all, the gravity of the charge. He says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge of the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom. I mean, this was an expression, I solemnly charge you, emphasizing the significance, the seriousness of what he was about to say, this command that he was about to give that Timothy was, was, was going to be obligated to obey. I mean, Paul could not have made his charge to Timothy any stronger, any weightier. He not only addressed, not only addressed him in the presence of, of God and in Christ, but also in light of the judgment to come when Christ returns. He says, I'm charging in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who, by the way, is going to judge you someday when he comes back for how faithful you are to fulfill this charge that I'm giving you. And so Paul wanted to give Timothy the impression that he was standing. It's as if he was standing before the very throne of God in heaven, and both the Father and the Son were watching, and they were listening to what he was about to command him to do, that this was a divine order ultimately mandated by God himself. This wasn't just Paul's, hey, buddy, I think this is, I would encourage you to do this. No, this is, this is a, a mandate from God. And if that wasn't enough pressure, Paul reminded Timothy that one day he would have to stand before God's appointed judge, his son, Jesus Christ, and give an account of whether or not he faithfully obeyed this charge. He's referring, of course, to the Bema Seat judgment here, when Christ would return and, 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 and every believer's acts of service will be reviewed and rewarded accordingly. I personally believe that it's, it, that it's preachers and teachers of the word who will be judged most strictly on that judgment day. James 3, 1, let not many of you become teachers, knowing that such, as such you shall incur a what? A stricter judgment. And so knowing that Jesus could come back at any moment and that he would hold Timothy accountable for his life and ministry was to serve as this powerful incentive for him to be faithful to this charge that, that Paul was about to give. And so we see the gravity of the charge, and then we see the duty of the charge. What, what is this charge? Verse 2, preach the word. Preach the word in light of the fact that you live and minister under the all-seeing eye of God who will, who will judge you one day. You need to preach the word. This, this command, this word preach, literally... Um, means to proclaim as a herald. And in those days, uh, kings would have heralds and their job was to go and communicate the message of the king to the people. And that was a very simple task. They didn't have to make up their own message. They didn't have to tweak the message. The king would say, this is what I want you to say. And they would go out and they'd stand up in the middle of the town and, and they would proclaim, they would herald the truth or the message of the king. And so what Paul is telling Timothy here, as a representative of the king of kings, you have been given the responsibility to clearly and boldly tell, tell people what God wants them to know. You're not to suggest or argue or debate or philosophize or try to prove anything. You're simply there to proclaim God's word with the authority of heaven behind you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was uh, one of the 
finest preachers of his day, wrote a book called Preachers and Preaching, and in it he says this, quote, any true definition of preaching must say that the man is there to deliver the message of God, a message from God to those people. He has been sent. He is a commissioned person. He is standing there as the mouthpiece of God and of Christ to address those people. He's not to merely talk to them. He's not to entertain them. He is a man who is there to declare certain things. He's a man under commission and under authority. He comes to the congregation as a sent messenger. I love that definition of preaching. And and ultimately, I have no inherent authority apart from God's word. I can't get up here and say, okay, everybody, this is what you need to do. I got no authority to tell you anything. But God does. And what gives the preacher the right to speak authoritatively is the fact that he is accurately and explaining what God has said in his word. And so he says, preach the word, the inerrant infallible, God-breathed scriptures that are profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. This should take us back to verses 16 and 17. In other words, Timothy was not to preach his own ideas or his own opinions or wasn't to talk, talk about politics. He was not to tell people about his dreams or his visions or share his experiences or just tell a bunch of stories and jokes. He was to only and always preach the word, God's word. Another great preacher of the last generation, John Stott, said this, that Timothy was basically, um, Paul was basically telling Timothy to speak what God has spoken. That's my job as a preacher, to speak what God has spoken. I'm so glad I don't have to come up with a a message every Sunday. That would drive me nuts. I I I don't know what I would do. I'd, I'd run out of stuff to say by now. But that's not my job. My job is to simply speak what's already been spoken. William Perkins, a Puritan, wrote in The Art of Prophesying or Preaching, he said, the word of God alone is to be preached. Scripture is the exclusive subject of preaching. That is the essence, I think, of true biblical preaching, which is so lacking, it seems, in the church today. And hopefully you know that. By now, uh, sitting under, hopefully, biblical preaching, biblical preaching is when the sermon or the message is based on the Bible. How novel is that, right? In other words, what the preacher says comes directly from the text of Scripture. In other words, the preacher shouldn't use a text of Scripture to springboard off to talk about whatever he wants to talk about. I've been, I've been to churches and I've sat through the message and I thought, man, that was a really good message and I agreed with much of what the guy was saying, but that's not what that passage was talking about. I don't know that passage any better, that verse any better than when I came in. I think a pastor, a preacher should get up and read a text, explain the text and apply the text and sit down. And by doing this, he allows God to speak. And people's lives are powerfully impacted because they've heard not the word of a preacher, they've heard the word of God. And the word of God is the only thing that can truly change and transform our lives. So we dare not preach anything else. 
And notice he goes on to explain quickly here how the word is to be preached. It's to preach to be, treat, be, be preached continually. He's saying be ready in season and out of season. John MacArthur said something funny this week. He said, you know, everybody wants to debate. What does that mean? Be ready in season and out of season. He, he says it really doesn't matter. It's just the idea is that he's doing it all the time. In other words, the idea here is you're... You're standing at your post like a soldier. You're, you're like a doctor uh, ready and to, to get that emergency page and to run into battle or to run into that emergency room. You're always on duty. You're always on call. You're, you're ready, waiting for opportunities to proclaim the word of God to those who need to hear it. When it's convenient, when it's inconvenient, when it's popular, when it's not popular, when, when it's wanted, when it's not wanted, whether you feel like it or not, you need to be ready to preach all the time. As someone told me when I was a young man, be ready to preach, pray, or die in a moment's notice. Be ready to preach, pray, or die in a moment. So we need to preach continuously or regularly. How about relevantly? Relevantly, notice the three commands here, reprove, rebuke, and exhort. Again, describing how the preacher should be skilled in using the word to address the specific needs of individuals in a variety of situations, to reprove, to correct those who are in error, to to show people their sin, to rebuke, to admonish, to warn people what will happen if they don't repent of their sin, they'll be punished, and then to exhort, to encourage uh, people to repent and to place their faith in Christ and to excel still more. And so there's the ministry of encouragement. And so that's what the preacher's job is, is to show people where they're out of line with God's word, warn them what will happen if they don't change, and encourage them to do the right thing and to honor the Lord. And they must do this patiently. Notice, with great patience. There, there should be great endurance and perseverance. People don't change overnight. People don't, people don't always respond to the truth of God's word. I know I don't always respond to the truth of God's word right away. And so it's, it'd be easy for the preacher to get discouraged if he, if he doesn't see immediate results. And bottom line is our job is to be faithful to preach the word and lead the results of the Holy Spirit. William Carey is a great example went to India as a missionary and for seven years labored without seeing any visible fruit until one guy got saved after seven years. One convert after seven years of ministry in India. He was patient. And our preaching must also be doctrinal. Notice it says, with great patience and instruction. The word there is the word for teaching or or doctrine. Uh, uh, Please don't take this as an insult, but it seems like it's missed by so many today, so many Christians today, that the purpose of preaching is to teach people the Bible. It's not to get up and tell a bunch of stories and give you a few hints and helps for your life. You know, it's to teach what the Bible says. And so every sermon, there should be some biblical doctrine that's explained, that's illustrated, that's applied. And, and if you're listening to, to a sermon and after, after you're done and you, you've not learned what that verse or passage means and how it applies to your life, then listen, you've not heard biblical preaching. 
And a lot of people leave the church feeling better about themselves when they, than when they came because the preacher made them laugh, he made them cry, he motivated them, he pumped them up, he stirred their emotions, and it was more like a pep rally, and yet they walk out of the church not knowing the Bible any better than when they walked in. And so there needs to be doctrinal preaching here. And then just quickly, again, the necessity of the charge. Why is this so important? In, in, in the next two verses, we find the reason why Paul's charge to Timothy had such this, 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 this stern and urgent tone. He said, for, verse 3, for because the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, which is a, a theme throughout the pastoral epistles, the, the, the importance of sound doctrine. But instead, wanting to have their ears, what? Tickled. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Paul's saying, Timothy, there is a time that is coming. There's an era of apostasy where there's going to be a wholesale turning away from the truth and people won't put up with it anymore. They're not going to tolerate the truth. They're going to refuse to sit there and listen to the truth. They're, they're, they're going to want to have their ears tickled. They, they, they want to be scratched. They want to be itched. They, they want to hear what makes them feel good. Listen, if you've got dogs, you know all about this. Your dogs love to get scratched behind the ears. I mean, our dogs, we come home and we're like, and, and all you got to do is reach down and start scratching behind, and they're just like, you know, they start doing all this stuff, and then they'll roll over, and their leg starts doing that thing, and, and right, you're just scratching, and the scratching goes from their ears to their whole body, and, and it just makes them feel good. Now, there's a whole lot of people showing up in church, and they're like, hey, I'm right, right there. And, the, and so the preacher starts doing this, and next thing you know, they're on the ground, and they're like, oh, down here, I guess, and they're like, oh, and they walk out, man, that was such a great sermon, such a great service. And they just got scratched. They got itched. They got tickled. And because these people have no desire to hear sound doctrine, because it confronts their their lifestyle, their sinful lifestyle, and makes them feel uncomfortable, it steps on their toes, so they look for someone who will make them feel good about themselves. And so they surround themselves with preachers who will tell them what they want to hear, who will scratch them where they itch. And they evaluate preachers not based on whether or not what they teach lines up with the scriptures, but whether or not it tickles their fancies. That's their evaluation of, oh, he's a good preacher, and he's not so good of a preacher. Well, because this guy makes me laugh, he makes me cry, I feel good when I listen to him, but man, this guy, man, I'm always, he's like always confronting us, he's, I always feel guilty, I feel convicted, and right, it's like, see, part of being a good Berean is not only comparing what the preacher is saying with the scripture, but it's also surrounding yourself with preachers who will tell you what, to need, what, what you need to hear, not just what you want to hear. That's being a good Berean. And so he says they'll turn away their ears from the truth. They'll have this, 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 this insatiable desire for inoffensive, unoffensive teaching that caresses them rather than confronts them. And they'll just turn a deaf ear to the truth. And as a result, they will turn aside to myths. In other words, if you, if you say, I don't want to listen to the truth, well, what's your other option? Myths, fables, fictions, things that aren't true. And so how was Timothy supposed to respond to this itching ear epidemic that Paul says was going to sweep through the church? Which, by the way, we're living in that generation, that era. 
And so Paul just made it unmistakably clear that even though people would rather hear upbeat, feel-good sermons that clear, than, than the clear, bold, authoritative preaching of, of God's word, that didn't change the fact that Timothy had a sacred duty to fulfill, and he summarizes the charge in verse 5. He says, but you, Timothy, be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. In other words, in this generation of people who don't want to hear the word preached, preach it anyway. Don't give it to the pressure to be an ear scratcher. Resist the temptation to tell people what they want to hear. You know, I've often told people, I said, you know, I don't know that we'll ever be a, a big church because, you know, we're not selling what people are looking to buy. And um, that's just the generation in which we live. He says, be sober in all things. Again, not talking about not drinking wine here. He's talking about metaphorically. Be alert. Be aware of what's going on around you. Don't become mentally and spiritually intoxicated like these people in verses 3 and 4. Be steadfast. Be unwavering. Don't vacillate back and forth. Don't let the fickleness of your hearers sway you from the truth. He says, be sober in all things. Endure hardship. Be willing to put up with ill treatment for those that don't want to hear from those who don't want to hear the truth. Listen, if you, if you refuse to compromise your convictions, your commitment to the Word of God, you are going to be unpopular in this culture. I'm just saying, you are. And if you faithfully proclaim and live the truth, you are bound to encounter opposition and persecution. It's just going to happen. And don't let the threat of, of suffering or hardship deter you from saying what needs to be said or doing what needs to be done. That's what Paul's saying. And he says, do the work of evangelists. And, and he's not saying, oh, well, by the way, Timothy, you're no longer a pastor teacher. You need to be an evangelist. He's not saying that. An evangelist is someone who's specially gifted by God to share the gospel with other people. We see that in other verses in the New Testament. We, we know that Timothy was, was gifted by God to be a pastor teacher. And Paul was just simply reminding him that the main focus of his, of his ministry, if it was an equipping ministry, was ultimately to share the good news of Jesus Christ. That his ministry, while, while it had a, an equipping emphasis, had to have an evangelistic core or goal, if you will. And while, while he was equipping the saints, he was always to keep the lost in mind and weave the gospel throughout his messages and throughout his ministry. And then he says, fulfill your ministry. Finish the job, Timothy that I'm giving you to do. Take care of your responsibility that I'm entrusting to you right now. Be faithful to your obligation as a minister of Christ. I love how this passage concludes, and I haven't read this portion yet, but Paul is essentially telling Timothy, hey, hey bud, finish your ministry. And he goes on to say, because by the grace of God, I finish mine. Verse 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. And in the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, who I just warned you about in verse 1, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. May God grant us the grace 
to remain faithful to him and his word until the very end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. Lord, we're humbled by it, we're convicted by it, we're, we're stimulated and encouraged and comforted and given hope by it and through it. And Lord, thank you for the privilege that some of us had this last week to be reminded of the importance, Lord, that we must keep on the, the word and never question it, uh, undermine it, lay it aside, feel like we need to supplement it with anything else. We thank you that is all we will ever need, Lord, to live the life in Christ that you've called us to live. So I pray you'd grant us grace as a church to hold high the truth of your word, and as we do that, that we know ultimately Christ will be exalted through your word, because we know that was the ultimate purpose of your word, is to reveal Christ to us, so that we might know him, and by knowing him, we could know you. And so, Lord, bless us now as we continue to grow and mature in our walk with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.